0: Welcome to the Gate World Podcast.
1: Welcome, everybody, to episode number 119 of the Gate World Podcast. I'm Darren. I'm David. And this is the show where three nerds talk about Stargate, because this week we're welcoming back to the show Diana Boxford our very good friend and i would say all things science fiction expert. Diana, well, welcome back to the show.
2: Well, thank you, David and Jared, and i don't think i can live up to that definition, but i will certainly try. <laughs>
3: <laughs> How are things going?
2: They're going good. I am really excited because fandomonium and crossroads press have put out a whole bunch of the Stargate, Atlantis, and Stargate SG-1 novels as ebooks.
4: Mm-hmm. You
2: can go over to Crossroads Press, and they are at five ninety nine a pop, including the latest Stargate Atlantis, the second in this post-series series, uh, The Lost. So um, it's just great to see them have new life. You know, everybody's got an e-reader now, and now everybody can take two seconds to download and buy one of these books and read them.
1: Very cool. Very are they cool. doing the whole, the whole back catalog right off the bat, do you know, or is it just the newer ones?
2: No, they started first with uh, four Stargate Atlantis books prior to the new series, the two in the new series. And then Steve Seville's uh, Power Behind the Throne and My Four Dragons is where they've started with the SG-1 ones. Some of the earlier ones are already available on Kindle. I actually have a couple of them on Kindle um, and also at, over at Barnes & Noble for the Nook. But now they're over at Crossroads, and the wonderful thing is they're in a variety of digital formats. It's not just a Kindle format. There are PDFs, there are Mobis, there are mm. EPUBs. So it's there to make everybody's life easier. And, uh, you know, the, like I said, the e-reader is so ubiquitous now. It's a, mm. it's a great thing. I'm so excited that they've done this.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. Props to Fandemonium for, for doing that. And, David, you've also been busy. Yeah. Yeah, I did
3: uh, <laughs> You're coming uh, off the live auction. Live auction was yesterday. I am beat today. This It was such a long day yesterday. We started at 11 o'clock and ended at uh, about 8.30 last night. It didn't take as much time as I thought to get through four hundred and twenty-six, twenty-seven 27-odd uh, items. So, uh, But uh, everything, pretty much everything sold. The SGC logo went for several thousand dollars. Um, the, MALP, wow. the MALP sold for at least 12 grand.
2: I wanted that melt <laughs> so bad. <laughs>
3: there were two people fighting over that thing, uh, man.
2: I'm sure.
3: Jeez, yeah. I'm
2: sure. It's so. Wally's grandfather. Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah. The uh, the, the Stargate uh, parts sold very well. It was, it was quite an exciting night.
2: Well, congratulations. Thank
3: you. Yeah, we were very proud of it. Yeah, so, it was yeah. very interesting to watch. And props to
1: PropWorks for doing it. I know that some people, every time we post news stories on GateWorld, there's somebody who says... You know, this is so sad, it's truly the end of Stargate, et cetera, et cetera. It's and yeah we, have movie. A, yeah, we have a, a, the future of the franchise to think about for sure. But the, the positive thing to, to focus on right now is the fact that these pieces are not being destroyed. These pieces are going out into the hands of fans that love them.
2: Yeah, and if, you know, the next new series, the next new movie, you're going to want them to do something new and different anyway. Technologies have come a long way since a lot of those things were built.
1: Well, our main topic today is Twin Destinies. Are you guys ready to talk about it?
2: Yes. Oh, very. The main discussion.
1: Twin Destinies is episode 12 of Stargate Universe's second season. It aired last week on Sci-Fi Channel in the U.S. and on space up there in Canada. And uh, I got to say, this is one of the episodes that I've been looking forward to most Mm -hmm. out of the whole of season two. We hear about... Titles of episodes that are in production, that are being written, and uh, some sort of hints about about the plot, and you can sort of gather a little bit about what the plot might be from a title like Twin Destinies. But the fact that Brad Wright wrote it—he's the guy who wrote uh, some of of uh, our favorite time bending episodes mm-hmm. and movies like Continuum, like uh, SG One's twenty ten—I knew, you know, great confidence uh, based on the history of Stargate coming into this that I was going to love this episode, and I loved it.
3: I do, too. It, uh, it's tied between Time as my favorite episode of SGU. It really yeah. is. It's it's right up there. It's it's clearly my favorite of season two. It was an unusual bit of science fiction. It's it was a it was a unique bit of science fiction that you don't see you don't see very often, and it makes you ask you know is that even possible you know is it's just it was just really cool.
2: You know, it's funny because yes, it it's definitely my favorite of the series so far, and the science fiction is fantastic. The visual effects are gorgeous, but. Those aren't the reasons why for me. It's because, first off, Brad Wright's fingerprints are all over it in a very positive way. There is subtext. There is character beats. There is implied versus discussed situations, and the emotions of the episode are so high. The stakes are so high emotionally. I felt like, in a sense, we were paid off for all of this Building momentum that we've had until this episode.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
2: it, I mean, and that's where Brad Wright really shines. The time stuff he's brilliant at, no question. But what he's br- really best at is these emotional moments, building us up to them and then rewarding us for having watched a few episodes. And that really came through in mm-hmm. Twin Destinies.
1: And it fits so well in where the story is at right now, both in terms of where Destiny is at. You know, we have this mission, but the ship seems to be falling apart. With There's apparently no way that the ship can, can sort of see the mission through because we're out of everything. And then on the other hand, sort of, this is not an episode that could have been done 10 episodes ago in terms of the relationship between Rush and Young, in terms of yep. this sense of actually deciding to stay on the ship.
2: Yeah, I mean, the theme of the episode really is clarity of purpose, that's what's really going on here what do i as a crew member of the ship want to do and that and the reveal of that is fascinating when you watch the individuals decide if they want to go back or not what is it that they want to do as individuals and as a group
3: mm-hmm. but the yeah. how many was it who stayed behind 11 12 you know it was a, it was a reasonable amount of people and got yeah. more than the 10 they wanted they did get more than the 10 they they got at least 11
2: yeah, and it wasn't know, it was, just it wasn't just people we know. There were no. people in the background that stepped over also.
1: Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. I was I was a little bit worried at first that as people started crossing the line, you know, it was TJ came over and then Chloe came over and then Matt came. Over. I was thinking, is this just going to be all the A cast who decides to stay?
3: Yeah, but it but wasn't. You, you know, it's it's irrelevant because that timeline was going to be delete get deleted though. Despite the fact that it was ultimately proven irrelevant, they still went ahead and showed who were really committed to the mission and who more wanted to go home. You know, I thought that was very interesting.
2: I think it was very important, actually, to the series as a whole that they show that. You yeah. Know? Yeah, well, I mean, we
1: had been talking about the fact that now that the mission has been revealed and we sort of have some control over the ship, there's been some sort of one-off lines about about you know guys like Brody buying into the mission and thinking it's important. But we really needed a, a moment where, you know, you have the chance.
3: Mm-hmm. You have a
1: choice between going back to Earth
3: mm-hmm.
1: or staying here and seeing the mission through. And it was fantastic to see our characters make that decision and to actually decide. Well, staying on Destiny, even if we were the wrong people, not supposed to be here, uh, staying on the ship is more important to us. At
2: and what point. was ironic is all, all along up until now, whenever Young has spoke, it's been very flat and uninspirational. And this one speech, this one time, he talks about. I know he talks about why <laughs> he joined Stargate Command, and I'm like, I'm stepping over to join you. You know, I yeah. mean, I was, I was as brought up by that as anybody else was. It was yeah. impressive.
3: It was nice to see young Standby Rush mm-hmm. and affirm that because because he has nothing left now. You know, he's divorced, so you know he. It says that yes, he does. He does believe in the mission, and he, or at the very least, he's got nothing better to—he's he, got nothing to lose, so might as well see this through. And I mean, um,
2: hats really need to go off. Also, I feel to Peter Deloise, the director of the episode. I think it's very interesting he's directing three episodes in a row, and I think it's also very telling that he seemed more comfortable in this episode than the one before because this episode had some of his uh, trademark double cut reaction beats of characters without dialogue mm-hmm. that's something uh de has always been his editing style as far as how he directs the editing Yeah,
3: you can tell he's in that editing bay
2: man you could tell he's in it and it's wonderful because really subtext what's not said is what keeps the viewer from just being a couch potato and instead being emotionally involved with the story
3: mm-hmm. actually watching the screen and not doing the dishes
2: that's right yeah. Exactly.
3: Did you notice there was a character out of uh out of S G one's past who appeared in this episode? And I'm not talking about Dr. Lee. No, who? Penhall. Penhall, you're with me. From Orpheus. Penhall was the guy who oh. uh, who handed Jack something. He, he climbed up over the, the ridge and it was Peter Deloise's character oh. in Orpheus. And now it's it's been established that Penhall is a board destiny.
2: Oh wow. Okay, that's very yeah. cool.
3: Yeah, it's one of that's, that's one of cool. Deloise's characters. Nice. So that was just a great little nod, you know. It's it's another example of of, of the ongoing continuity of this universe. Yeah. All of it. and they went with Penhall, not with Dagwood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, I mean, on the subject of continuity, I mean, you had them bring up our three the the franchise's three brainiacs prior to Stargate Universe, so there was certainly mm-hmm. more on that as well.
3: That's a nod there, yeah, yeah. Right down to McKay's behavior. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I I I'll be honest, I felt like that was a little shoehorned in.
3: It was yeah. a little on the nose, I thought. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's obviously it's obviously given for fans. I mean, Eli, other than the fact that he watched the the 101 videos that Daniel Jackson recorded, he probably doesn't have a clue who, you know, Samantha Carter or Rodney McKay are.
2: Well, mm-hmm. he met he would have met Lieutenant Colonel Carter on the Hammond on his way to Icarus.
3: Maybe, Maybe. not necessarily. Maybe. 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 There's a decent chance of it, yeah.
2: Or at least you would have heard her name. You mm-hmm. would have heard the, the the person driving the boat's name, so to speak.
3: Yeah. It's, that's a good question. I mean, how much material has Eli gotten his hands on about Stargate Command? How much right. has he learned about the program, the ongoing programs of Earth, like Atlantis and, and Homeworld Command, since he's been on board the, the uh, Destiny? Uh, right. he's, he spent a lot of time with these people. Surely he's heard stories. Uh, these Many of these people may have served with these guys. So, you know, there's there's, there's probably a lot of that going on.
2: But the thing is, is that unlike the three of them, he does not have a Ph.D.
3: No, he doesn't. No. And,
2: you know, since I spend my days around Ph.D.s, I can tell you there, there is a significant difference. And this really defines Eli's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's been a slacker up until now and what it takes to become a Ph.D. And I mean, Darren, you're going through this now yourself with writing a thesis. There's mm. an enormous PhDs. amount of focus that you have Imagine to put into nuts. it. Yeah. Well they are. They're numbed out by having to go through that process.
3: <laughs> and Rush even says in this episode, Eli is not an astrophysicist. And what does Eli do? Even even Eli has to admit, I killed those people. You know, yep. or at the very least, uh what happened was largely because of me. Yep.
1: Yeah, and Rush is exactly right. And we also get Brody uh saying Eli is the smartest person he's ever met. Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't yep. want Eli to know that. No, nope. okay.
2: <laughs> Except for Einstein, yeah.
3: <laughs> like, when did you meet Einstein? What wormholes have you been going through? Really. <laughs> yeah, really.
1: This, this this exchange with Eli in the control room, though, is a really nice beat for his character because he's you know he's the humble, sort of still naive guy who doesn't think that Homeworld, the Stargate Command is going to ask him to join the program because, you know, who is he?
3: It's a nice yeah. bit of affirmation. Was it nice to see Dr. Lee, though? I mean, Diana, you've oh. written Lee into a couple of your books, so... Yeah
2: especially in the one I'm working on now. I mean, Lee, I, anything with Lee, I'm happy to see. Again, continuity, um, lightness. But, you know, even, going back to what you are saying about Eli, that goes back to what I was saying that, that the episode's theme is, and that's clarity of purpose. So for this episode, mm-hmm. for Eli, it's about, oh, what is it I want to do when we get back home? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So when, the, when he, his arc changes, and he, at the last moment, crosses the line and joins those that are going to stay behind
3: that was surprising
2: that was interesting
3: i would have thought that that if not of any of them he probably would have been the one who wanted to go home you know get out of this situation
2: well his mother we can exactly yeah
3: we can talk
1: about uh, those individual characters and and why maybe some of them crossed across the line and we have a, a voicemail on that topic Um, But first, just on Dr. Lee, let me say, this is actually continuity within SGU itself. Because remember, Dr. Lee has been on SGU once before. Yes, he has.
3: I don't think he had any speaking lines, though.
1: No, but in the pilot, he was on stone duty, wasn't he? He was sitting in the chair waiting Mm -hmm. for somebody to connect to him. And we see, you know, a year and a half later, he's apparently still there doing the same thing.
3: Good to see. So Destiny's out of spare parts. We are, like, pretty much out of gas you know this this mm. uh this ship is damaged in ways that we cannot imagine that we cannot comprehend it, even if they do get all the parts that they need you know they're they're going to need to really figure out how to use them properly i mean even even mm. brody says i don't know what this is but we need it you know it's mm-hmm. what makes it go <laughs> so <laughs> flashback yeah. to the naclits can you make which, us go
1: was that a Paclid reference, I wonder? <laughs> yeah. It was Brad, so I assume it was. Yeah, uh, He's a Star Trek fan.
2: Yeah, No, I mean, but it made sense that uh, they've been through several really hardcore battles. Things would be worn out. They barely understand how the thing works to begin with. So it made sense that they got to that point at the beginning of the episode.
1: Yeah, we're down to our last everything, they, yeah. they say. And mm-hmm. I, think, I think, Diana, I think it was you who I saw online last week reference Brody and Volker are like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern yes of destiny that's brilliant yes. that's so yes. brilliant
2: yes they are they're wonderful and it was a very smart casting move and writing move to keep that energy going between the two of them yeah i mean if you don't if you don't know the shakespeare reference you can also think of it as the the old the two old guys in the balcony on the muppet show <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh uh waldorf and um, Statler. statler statler yeah, yes. yeah. Oh!
2: Yes. yes exactly it's the same thing the two ones off to the side you know making the comments that no one else would ever dare say
1: so uh the mission is is over the ship is about to fall apart as as telford passionately puts it later there is only the day when this ship dies that's, a good that's what you're staying for and eli offers us another choice And this is a story that has to be told uh, because we tried to do it or we thought we tried to do it all the way back in early season one in the episode Earth. Uh, Remember, Telford came on board the ship via communication stones with a couple of of his own scientists and tried to dial the ninth Chevron back Mm -hmm. to Earth from inside a star. And Rush sort of pulled a fast one and made them think that it didn't work and made them think that destiny was going to blow up. You know, since then, we've just had the sense that Rush doesn't want to try it because he thinks it's too dangerous, but Mm -hmm. it might
3: work. But now we need to – now – I mean that episode Earth left us with the question, you know, if he's not interfering, if Rush is not interfering, can it be done? And that's what this episode does. You know, it answers that question. Sort of.
2: (laughs) Well, I thought it was very smart that they kept him from pushing any buttons and they had guards set up everywhere. Yeah, they're saying
3: to uh, us that this is – that he's not – participating in this yeah
2: right, right. he's not going to make them question if it's doable or not and rush is still rush yeah.
1: he might go and do something to keep them all there
3: right we still don't know who this guy really is you know and that's that's one of the big questions of the series like i like i said either last week or the week before who is this man
2: i he seems especially in this episode to be going through some huge emotional insecurity and change realizing that he can't at first he thought he could do this all by himself he could keep everybody locked out of the information and off the bridge and he could figure it all by himself and since his wife died he's probably become one of these individuals who's decided it's dangerous to depend to depend on anybody for anything
3: mm-hmm.
2: mm. and that's an understandable place mindset to go to and he has painfully learned that that's not the case that he mm. needs to And that's why it's such a big deal for him when he has to write that speech and speak to them.
3: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even the opening words, my friends, sound very, very hollow. You know, there's that long pause and (laughs) I'm like, "Ah!"
2: Crickets. (laughs) Yeah, but then he goes on to say, okay, maybe not friends, but we've been through something together. We've been through adversity together and that's big. Yeah. You know? And then, I mean, what Young gives him in that episode is huge. Yeah.
3: Well, he basically hands them the megaphone, you know, and says, okay, you talk to them.
1: Well, Well, it it shows you how far they've come. That Rush says, this is going to go a lot farther if you're standing next to me. And Young's response is, I can do that. Mm -hmm. That is so far from, you know, justice and divided last season.
3: You killed that boy, yeah.
2: And also the 10 plus 2. Right. You know, that he's, of course he's going to stay there. And the way Young delivers that. Is just of course I'm going to be here. Of course I'm going to do this with you. I'm, yes, I see that it's important. Yes, mm-hmm. I recognize you. Is basically what he's saying.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So um, it's big. I'm, you know, I mean, I, you see moments like that, and you're like, oh, why doesn't the show have a third season? This is brilliant.
3: You would, I, I would never have thought that Rush that that Young would have uh, stood toe to toe with Telford. I mean, said, you know, David, we don't know that this ship is on its last... I mean, that that this is all for nothing, you know? Yeah, the, the first leg of this was figuring out what the ninth Chevron did. Now that that's done... Maybe maybe we are equipped to to answer this uh, this question about the universe that this this ship uh, is out here for. I mean, apparently, like we found out in the episode, it was a million years ago, which is just another problem to add to the, the to, to the, the timeline of destiny. And apparently, it took an, an entire generations of ancients to build it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was yeah. an interesting new nugget of information. That apparently Rush seems to think that uh, a generation. Of Ancients did this.
2: Uh, mm-hmm. well, and that it was important information. You know, from a character perspective, I think it makes sense that Young is now at this point where he's siding with Rush and not with Telford, in part because of Rush sharing with him the nature of Destiny's mission. In a certain sense, what Rush has done for Young is giving Young purpose again. Mm. And that's mm. very similar to the SG-1, well, the Stargate movie and SG-1, Daniel Jackson giving Jack O'Neill purpose again. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's just played in a darker, well, in some ways darker, in some ways not as dark. I mean, it's not like Young lost a son. But uh, it, there is a parallel. There is a definite parallel there mm. uh, going on that uh, Rush has definitely given something to Young, and Young feels the need to stand by that.
3: Mm-hmm. Mhm. The two in in some degree need each other. Similar to I mean how how I suppose light and dark need each
2: other. Yes. Funny you should say that. <laughs> <laughs> Considering that uh yeah that um Peter DeLuise directed those episodes. So, yeah. It's a great story on I mean it hit all the notes. It was visually stunning, it was scientifically fascinating. And it gave us character, which is what belongs in the franchise. And quite frankly, it's what a lot of critics of, the, of this series have been begging for. And we're there now. We are mm-hmm. so there. Mm-hmm. It was just ex- an extraordinary payoff. Brad Wright and Pe- Peter Delouise and the actors and cast and crew just did a phenomenal job.
1: This is an interesting uh, question about the mission of Destiny. And if you were stuck on this ship... And had a real tangible choice. I mean, here is an open wormhole to go home. Would you stay? Uh, Because really we're talking about a science experiment. We're talking about a really, really, really important, significant science experiment. And maybe learning about this sort of origin of the universe thing.
2: And a very Um, dangerous one at that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's one where it's, it's not like maybe in 10 or 20 years we'll get to go home again after we've finished out the mission. It's the... You know, you may never go home. That's right. Mm -hmm.
2: In a heartbeat for me. I mean, I wouldn't even think about it. I would have been the first one. I would have been like Greer. I wouldn't even thought about it. I would have been like, all right, sign me up.
3: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, we'll we'll probably get to this in a little bit. But I think it's interesting how everyone, pretty much everyone, seemed to follow everyone else. Greer followed Young. uh, uh, Scott followed Chloe. James followed Scott. You know, everyone... Everyone is connected to one another in their own little ways, and you kind of see that illustrated with when they choose to walk over.
0: Greetings. This is Scott calling from St. Petersburg, Florida, about Twin Destinies. Um, I thought um, Russia's speech was absolutely fantastic. This is one of the defining moments of this franchise. And um, it was also great just to see you know that moment and that opportunity for everyone to be able to stand up and decide to, um, stay. Um, uh, Greer of course was no surprise, um, with his characteristic bravado and swagger. Um, you know, Greer's been established as a believer and he clearly believes in Colonel Young, but also in the spirit of duty and honor. Um, and it's also been previously slavish that he joined the military because he wanted to make a difference. No surprise then that he's proudly ready to stay aboard destiny. Um, Volker was an unlikely second, um, with his blonde hair, he kind of looks like the cowardly lion from the wizard of Oz, but, um, definitely finding his heart when people need him the most. Um, TJ, not so surprising. She clearly has multiple reasons for wanting to stay. Um, not the least of which is trying to understand her experience her out of body experience with the aliens and whatever that was. Also, you know, she probably still has feelings for young and, um, also has a certain amount of duty to remain as the crew's medical officer um Chloe also um mixed bag um whether they are still manipulating her or not, her experiences with the aliens may be a factor um also maybe staying aboard is her way of like honoring her father, who knows um and you can see Lieutenant James watching Chloe with teary eyes because she knows. That where Chloe goes, Lieutenant Scott is following, and it seems to me that um, she's the next to decide to stay because of what Scott is doing. And then there's some other anonymous redshirt SGC guy. Um, and then there's this visual exchange between Eli and Rush, and you know, Eli doesn't come, you know, with a spring in his step, but um, you clearly see that um, he's making his decision not based on what Chloe is doing or anyone else, but perhaps because, you know, Rush just made the compelling argument to him that the scientific part of his brain, you know, believes that, you know, this is the greatest opportunity in mankind and he wants to be a part of it. But I also believe that Eli's decision has as much to do with his personal relationship with Rush. Um, Both Rush and Young have been like a surrogate father to Eli, but I think that uh, he and Rush have like a certain understanding and affinity that could be developed later, as it already has been. Um, I'm a big fan of alternate timelines as a device in general, but I wish that this grand noble speech and the stepping forward of the crew would be something that the characters could recall in future episodes, and that's not the way that they organized it. Um, Second, uh, the salvage sequence on the Destroyed Destiny was incredibly tense, and it's great the way they just dressed the set to convey a sense of dread and doom, and I was convinced that we couldn't trust the older Rush at all. I thought that um, this was some sort of ploy to strand the crew on the go ship. And it turned out not to be the case, but I thought it was going to go some event horizon-type direction for a minute there. Um, and third, again with the speech, as delivered and performed by Robert Carlyle, it's amazing. Um, and I think the irony is not lost on me that it not only sounds like a character making the case for Destiny's mission, but also for the writers making a case for the continuance of the show. Um, It's uh, I only know that destiny has come this far and if we abandon her now, there'll be no coming back.
1: So Scott makes some, some interesting points about who's crossing the line and when, right? It, It seems like Chloe decides to go over. I wonder if it's because she, you know, has this connection to rush and, you know, owes him her life a couple times over. And and then obviously Scott seems to be going because Chloe's going. And it's, it's so telling. You know, Lieutenant James doesn't have a whole lot to do in this episode, but we learn so much about her character just by the editing of her going over after Matt goes over. Like, mm-hmm. she's, you know, she looks to me like she's still just in love with the guy and can't let it go. Mm-hmm.
2: What about TJ, though? Is TJ still in love with Young? Is that why he's going? Oh, She's yeah. going, rather? Is that why
1: she's staying? Oh, yeah. Out. Gotta be.
2: You think so? So you think yeah. this is all about love, that it's... Other than Rush and Young and Eli and... Which of the three guys, uh, three scientists went over? Was it Volkmer who went over?
1: Yeah,
3: Volker went over.
2: Volker went over. That they're the only ones that went for... Pure purposes versus secondary agenda issues.
3: I, I, I just think that everyone had their own reason for wanting to stay. Hope, yeah, and I mean,
1: Varro stays. I, I wouldn't pin all of that on the fact that he's got it bad for TJ. Mm-hmm. I think the Lucian Alliance came to the ship expecting to get something out of it.
3: And he's yeah, maybe he's gonna go ahead still, and trying,
1: still trying to yep. see that through.
3: What yep. about Varro? He's leading his own team when they go when they go to the other ship. Did you notice that? Yeah. He's yeah. he's just all gung ho now. They he's out of his cage and leading groups of people and trusted. Uh, yeah, yeah, that kind of yeah. happened off screen. I wonder if there was a deleted scene somewhere in there.
2: Uh, it would be a pretty big scene. I think it's just an assumed, implied situation, and yeah. you know, you know, in the scheme of things, I think that that's okay. I think it's it was a natural evolution at this point. He has like no dialogue in this episode.
3: Though. Yeah, he, he has next to nothing
2: next to nothing, but I would naturally assume that he would cross the line and stay Mm -hmm. because that was, as you say, that was why the Lucian Alliance got on board in the first place.
3: His wife is dead. He's got no reason to go back.
2: Yeah. What I have the hardest time understanding is Telford being against it because Telford was originally the one in charge of going.
3: He's kind of gotten himself into a situation where he he believes that the mission is – you know, this this has done what it was supposed to do, and that's it. We found that the ship that was out there, and he has really no interest beyond that. He's he's kind of you know, kind of reverted to the character he was in season one, where he was he was kind a little of sword. Yeah,
2: I didn't like when. him at all. I didn't like him in this episode at all, and I I'm expecting that I wasn't supposed to.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, he he gets a bit uh, a bit more hard nosed military, uh, which is totally understandable. He's talking about maybe I have half a mind to force you guys to come back with us. Because, you know, the mission, as he rightly put it, was to explore the Ninth Chevron address and see where it goes and what, what the significance is not to spend the rest of your life, you know, times 80 people.
3: I mean, I can see O'Neill doing that, though, too. I mean, if you look at, if you, if you look at like, the episode Prodigy uh, in season four of SG-1, where there's all those scientists on that planet, and they want to stay to, to study these light beings, you know, I can see O'Neill saying, you know, I have a half a mind to drag you all back. This is ridiculous, so I can see I can see where Telford is coming from in, in this in this kind of situation, you know. Yeah. So.
2: Well, um, I would disagree with that because I know O'Neill, if Carter and Daniel both talked to him enough about the implica- the huge implications involved, that Jack would relent and agree.
3: Yeah, but Telford doesn't know these people like that. Even even he no, admits, you know, I haven't true. I haven't been here this this long. I was thinking about Jack talk, talking that way to Lee and a couple of the other scientists, the little guys who were right. who were running around on that planet, you know, studying these beings. You know, he was, right. he just practically wanted to swat them. You know, that's yeah, or, you have to understand where he's coming from.
1: Yeah. Or think about an episode like Need, where Daniel wants to stay behind on the planet because he gets addicted to the sarcophagus. Uh, and so Jack doesn't think he really has a legitimate reason. You know, mm-hmm. he's not really making this decision mm-hmm. with all of his mm-hmm. marbles. So you could see Jack in that sort of a situation, you know, yeah. zadding the guy and throwing him over his shoulder, yeah. taking him back through the wormhole.
3: And I do believe that, Telford, it is. this is coming from a place of, you know, I want to keep you all alive. That, that I really feel that that's where it came from. Um, but we're not supposed to agree with him in this kind of context. You know, we, no. we are... We're more aware of of uh, of what's going on than he is, and you know we're we're more inclined to uh, to stay to to stay aboard.
2: So I think what that demonstrates is not only did Brad Wright give us a good story, but he got us emotionally involved, and he got us to finally connect and understand where these protagonists are coming by by making them clear protagonists and having Telford take on the role of antagonist in this episode. Mm-hmm. You know, we clearly knew where we needed to stand, just mm-hmm. from an emotional standpoint, and that's you know that's great.
3: So the Stargate opens, and Telford goes through. He's the first to go through, which I I thought was slightly surprising. But then I realized that you know, the like Scott and Greer, they're all staying behind. So he he's kind of has next to no staff. So he has to go through himself. And then the wormhole starts fizzing like it did in, uh, in the season one episode, Time. You know, a lot of people uh, have, have pointed this out. You know, Billy from South Carolina and Hiram from Arizona about, uh, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't this have been erased? Uh, 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 Telford going back. But, you know, and I was talking with you guys about this before the show. If, if the ship jumped back in time right at the same time when the wormhole was established, he wouldn't have been deleted at that point because they had already shifted into the past.
5: Hi, I'm Billy, and I'm from South Carolina, and I'm calling because I have a very important question about the episode Twin Destinies. Now, I am currently speaking right after I just saw the episode on the premiere day, and it left me wondering... Rush traveled back in time after the mission to go back to Earth was a failure. He traveled 12 hours back in time to stop them from going through the mission. Now, in his timeline that he came from, Telford went through the gate with the others, and only Telford made it through. And when Rush went back 12 hours, he stopped Telford and the others from going through. Now, shouldn't that mean that Telford never went through the gate in his timeline? and that Destin shouldn't be there, and that nobody really ever died in his timeline because he prevented that timeline from ever occurring. Um, I'm just really curious because it all made sense, and then I thought about it. And we know this because in Stargate Continuum, Carter brings up the grandfather paradox. And um from the movie and from the episode... And um I'm thinking off the top of my head, I think it was nineteen ninety six. Uh it was part of an SP One season two episode. And uh, even two thousand ten kinda rings some bells on this. And so I'm just kinda wondering. Can you guys explain this?
3: Hey guys, this is Hiram from Mesa, Arizona. I uh had a question and a comment on this latest episode of Twin Destiny Destinies. Um, I was curious how the Telford timeline still exists on Earth, of Telford going to Earth. When I thought when Rush went back in time, it cancels out the other timeline. Um, I'm using the back-to-the-future logic, where changes in the timeline affects the past and the future. Um, I couldn't figure out how those two timelines still exist in the in the current time. Hi, this is Avi from Chicago. I
6: uh, was calling about last week's episode, Twin Destinies, and I thought this was a really good episode. Um, one of the better ones of the season and the series in general. Um, We got to see some very important um, points, character moments, in that we see that um, Rush's true purpose, his ultimate um, end, is the gathering of knowledge, that his final act, time travel Rush's final act, is to sit in the chair and download all the information into his brain. Um, We also uh, got to... Um, Here, a nice little you know shout out to the other um, shows. In that, when uh, they're in the fla- in the flashback, when they're speaking about um, Eli joining Stargate Command, um, TJ and Lieutenant James mentioned the fact that um, he'll be up there with the other Brainiacs at Stargate Command, um, like Colonel Carter, um, Daniel Jackson, and then they have this little dialogue about how about that creepy guy um, who keeps on staring um, in Rodden McKay. The major quibble I had with the episode, though, once, you know, taking into account the fact that, um, the worm, the, the, in the, so, the solar flares, with connecting with the wormhole, could create a time travel loop, um, for the actual wormhole itself. And then, you know, grabbing a hold of grabbing all the whole ship and grabbing the ship into in the loop itself. Um, but then you have a time travel paradox because once you once rush um makes contact with the other ship with the other destiny, they never went through the gate, so that time travel never occurred um and then Telford should not be sitting on the other side of the on the other side in um the Milky Way galaxy um sitting there, and for that matter, rush should kind of vanish too, as we saw happened in uh with in the uh, target continuum that the whole that when you go back in time enough. Um, and you change events in the past, um, the events change in the future. Um, And they, you know, physically, so Russ shouldn't have been there, we shouldn't have an extra shuttle, um, and there shouldn't be, for that matter, there shouldn't be another Destiny floating there to um, salvage parts from. So I hope, look forward to the next episode, I hope it's as good as this one.
1: We've got these three voicemails from uh, Billy, Hiram, and Avi, and there's some similar questions, which is how does this whole time paradox, temporal wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey thing work. I think that the first thing we have to recognize is when the time jump happens. And I think the time jump happens as soon as the wormhole is established. And it happens Mm -hmm. to the wormhole, and it happens to the whole of destiny. You know, they jump back around 12 hours into the past. And so when Telford goes through, he's going through to Earth 12 hours in the past. uh, And Rush is sort of hanging out, waiting... For mm-hmm. destiny to show up again, to
3: show up, which it does. Well, I don't. I don't think he knew that the, it had time shifted into the past until that had happened. Until he saw them on their sensors. Then yeah, it the I don't think he left.
2: was. I don't think he was waiting for anyone to show up. I think it was just that they did show up, and he's like, "Oh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: now." Nah, and then he figures it out. But as far as there being a twinning that happens, it's like a hiccup. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a hiccup that. As Rush says early on in regards to the, the type of quantum mechanical forces taking place inside a star that are so unpredictable, it's possible. In the realm of the Stargate franchise and rules that have been set down and established and reinforced now for how many years?
3: A long time. Yeah, it's
1: long very long consistent time. with the way that Stargate has done time travel. Uh, yes. Hiram mentions the back to the future logic of time travel which is, <laughs> which, which is very different than what Stargate operates with in back to the future if you go back to the past and you're in 1955 and you make a change then you, know, you can look at your photograph of yourself and your siblings and they will like, actually fade away because yeah. there's like one continuous timeline that you're yeah. altering
3: the pieces that yeah. you take out of time are tethered to the time they came from exactly it's right. not the way that Stargate does time travel
2: no, I mean, it, you were talking about a photograph. Perfect example is Continuum. Yeah. It's the perfect example. The, at the end of the movie of Stargate Continuum, that locker door swings back open, and that Mitchell's locker door swings back open as the young Mitchell struts off with everybody else for lunch, courtesy of Jack O'Neill, and <laughs> it's the Mitchell, what, 70 years back in time? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. 60 years back in time during World War I or two when the Stargate was being transported on that cargo ship. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the photograph does not fade, it does not disappear, it is, it stays. And quantum physicist uh, Michio Kaku, who's the guy doing these, these Sunday firefly uh, science narrative pieces on the Science Channel, he has a whole book on the subject of time travel and it fits very closely to Brad Wright's vision for it where it's like hiccups or like if you were to take a, if you've ever made uh, animals out of balloons uh, where, you know, you would squeeze uh, one section, you would rotate it around and you have, and you have its nose and you'll have the ear and all that, that time and the universe and all that there is is like that. And when something like this happens, it's like a, sh- a small offshoot, almost like a double bubble, which double brings you back to twin and twin destinies. So, I mean, I think that Wright is following what scientists are theorizing about right mm-hmm. now in regards to time travel. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think he's doing a great so, job.
1: Yeah. So we have two Telfords, one is on
3: Earth, and we have two Rushes. So if you were trying to figure out what they were supposed to do with Lou Diamond Phillips, now you have two to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Great. Now we've got two of them. Yeah. You know, yeah. You've got this huge well, actor who's, I'm sure, not cheap.
1: <laughs> it's it solves our problem that we've been discussing on the podcast in a brilliant way, which is Lou Diamond Phillips is is presumably uh, too big and too expensive of an actor to make a series regular. Right. right. So we've we've got to get rid of him some way. How do we put uh, him we back
3: on the shelf without
1: speculating him? that uh, it might just be time to kill him off? Uh, but that's a that's a pretty big tool to to take out of your. Your writer's arsenal. So, although
2: nobody ever really dies, science fiction. Yeah, right? but
1: still, well, it's
3: all been done, you know. But this hasn't really been done, which is what the is way so that cool the writers do this. it
1: is just yeah. brilliant. Which is that we get to kill off Telford and keep him, get him back to Earth, yeah, and, and keep him. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's
3: very clever. It I mean, after you find out that there's another one out there. And that there are two rushes. It, the, one of the things that are, is made fairly clear is okay, something has to happen to these two, these two spare parts before the end of this episode. You can't. I mean, you can you can bring two transistors over into into Destiny, but you can't necessarily bring two rushes over because that'll be cost prohibitive. Because both rushes will be in all the scenes, all the subsequent scenes throughout the rest of the series.
1: And it would be very confusing.
3: It would be very confusing. They'd they'd have to call them old Rush and young Rush, you know. Yeah. And they well, they start yeah. to a little bit.
2: Yeah, yeah. Rush refers to his younger self at one point. Yeah, by twelve hours, <laughs> he says, "My younger self says this."
1: <laughs> did either of you guys wonder if they might actually keep one of the Rushes or one of the Telfords for a few episodes? This is something that they did in Farscape They twinned John Crichton, and when everybody expected that he was going to be killed off in this one or the next one, really they kept him yeah. around for really. Like it was a big deal. Episodes.
3: It's a yeah. very big deal. I did not know that.
1: There were two of them for for most of season three. Uh, They split them up pretty close, pretty uh, pretty quickly. Oh, okay. So they had two storylines going. One was on Maria and one was off on Talon. And
2: and actually, Sarah Michelle Gellar is about to do something with twins where she's going to be, uh, the pilot's being shot now, where she's going to be playing two separate characters that are twins of each other throughout the series. She's going to have to do double work. So, I mean, it, it, it's been done, but I do, I, I mean, I do think this ending that they did in, in Twin Destinies was a much more organic, it was like part of Rush got to do what Rush has been, thi- you know Rush has been thinking about this yeah, all along.
1: Yeah, let's use the chair. He knew let's exactly where chair. to go to find him, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: He is him. Exactly. He is if, him, Exactly. If the instinct, the the one thing that you always wanted to do, was strong enough and far enough apart from all the other things that you wanted to do, should this situation arise, he 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 knew it.
2: Yeah, and but I guess my real question with that would be, what do you guys think was the motive for doing that? Because he could have gone back to the other the younger yeah. destiny. So what? I have my own thoughts, but I'm I'm curious to hear what both you guys think his. Motive was
3: well. Young already says right there. You know, I believe you, but the others will not. So he can't go back.
1: Rush. Um, the, the younger Rush says that. Right.
2: Well, why? What are they going to do to him? Spank him? I mean, come <laughs> You know. I mean.
1: Yeah, he could say. I mean, we had a fight, and it was an accident, and I'm really sorry. Uh, yeah. But this means, as as big as he has been all episode on staying and seeing through the mission you know this mm-hmm. means that that the older rush the alternate rush is sort of giving up the mission he doesn't mm-hmm. get to see it through mm-hmm. is that
2: what he's doing he's
3: going down with the ship no, uh, he i think well, he, I, mean, I think he's, he's pulling out the, the the cheat sheet and he's gonna have a look at it you know i mean that's that's what he's doing getting into this chair he's he's going to find out all the details for himself without wait having to wait before yeah. he dies
2: well, well die. we don't best. even know that we'll, we'll
3: get to sleep. that in a little bit i suspect
1: yeah. But, no. Uh, my thought was was what David said that that his younger self, but, that conversation that he has before he activates the chair, basically indicates that Rush has decided on this course of action instead of going back to the the surviving destiny because he's you know guilty of involuntary manslaughter and the others are not going to understand.
2: I mean, for me, I think that I, I don't think that they die in the chair, and I'm hoping, as you say, David, that we're going to get more into this. I mean, both Rushes <laughs> have experienced franklin on the bridge so they know Mm -hmm. he knows something something's going on yeah right is it ascension is it computer memory for all we know that alternate rush is already at the destination of the destiny
3: or he went through the gate um while scott still had it open he had already he had already become whatever he becomes that missed and uh and and is now aboard our ship um, without us even knowing it, yeah. That's... or or we didn't see Destiny blow up. We just saw it go back into the star, and we yeah. know that this ship is designed to be reinforced by, by, these, by these stars. So, I mean, we don't, we don't know what kind of damage she sustained. Maybe she couldn't, but all I'm saying is something happened, and it's going to have repercussions, or it should have had repercussions. I, I think that what we see in this episode is setting up something in the season finale. I really yeah. do.
2: I, think I hope so, and I, wonderful. Yeah.
1: I like the fact that it is ambiguous, that you don't see Destiny go up in a big mm-hmm. ball of fire. Something happened there. Yeah, and um, the fact that we've been talking about this uh, Will Decker comparison with uh, Star Trek One, the motion picture, um, that's sort of what this rush does at this point, is he sort of merges with the machine, and who knows if he's gone forever? Who knows if he's, you know, maybe he is... Possibly able to be not only uh, incorporated into the ship, but then wirelessly transferred over to the other destiny.
3: Mm-hmm. It's cool storytelling, and it's you know what I was I I wanted to remark on is how seamless the double effects are in this oh, yeah. episode. How you know it's not like back in point of view in season three of. of of uh sg1 where they had they locked down the camera or the the camera wasn't dynamic you know about the Mm -hmm. around the time of uh, ripple effects, the camera started being really mobile and they've got it down it is see every one of these shots you don't notice and the visual effect happening and that's i think the whole point they've got it down to the they've got it down to a science and you don't you don't see it anymore you don't you don't see the the, okay. Well, this element is clearly a part of a separate element that's standing in front of a uh, that's standing silhouetted in front of the background. You know, it's just it's perfect.
1: It was with Ripple Effect that they introduced this uh, new technology, Moses, dynamic camera movement, the, yeah, the motion system camera that uh, well, the motion that control
2: camera, in. yeah. And they actually introduced that earlier. They introduced that uh, in Small Victories. Uh, back in SG-1, where by putting certain um, sensor key spots on the floor... Oh, the red you, lights of the replicator, you, yeah. You could move the camera, and the replicators could be put in. But, you know, absolutely every season is building on the one before. This is the beauty of science fiction, television, and film. They're constantly building on their technologies. I thought the shots, the, the, the doubles, were quite good. I didn't think they were great, to be perfectly really? frank. No. Really? I had a problem with lack of depth of field um, and I think part of that may have been a bad director a, not necessarily a bad director decision but you need a mid they needed a mid ground you had the foreground of the one rush you had the background of the other rush that would generally usually be soft focus you needed a mid ground that was mid focus you need that mid ground level to buy it, to really buy the depth of field. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we all know in our heads how this is done, so it's very hard to suspend disbelief at this point. We're a jaded audience. But what makes you buy things shots like that even more is having that mid-level. You have the foreground, mid-ground, and background. And it didn't, go back and look at those shots. There's a foreground and there's a background, but there's Mm no mid-ground. You either have sharp focus or out of focus.
3: focus. Diana's had this argument before about, especially with Crystal Skull, when they, when they uh, introduce the giant cavern, you know, you have a foreground uh, and a background. But the mid-ground yeah. sells it, you know, yeah. if, if they have that. Um, yeah. It just didn't work for that episode. Again, you know, that was the first time that they had ever done that. So, you know. Yeah.
2: yeah, I mean, that's why Avatar is so visually stunning. Forget the story. We won't even go there. But Avatar is so stunning because Jim Cameron knew that about foreground, mm-hmm. mid-ground, and background. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, even in regular shooting without visual effects, a great director is going to have those three elements to give you a real dynamic range visually. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was not that wasn't quite there for me. I mean listen, it could have been a lot worse, don't get me wrong, but it's just that little sweetener that it needed that it didn't have.
3: Wasn't this an awesome idea of going to another ship and getting the exact same components that you have on board your ship, the oh, exact yeah. same guns, the exact same ammo, exact same parts, right down to the repair robot, which mm-hmm. was a great shout out. You know where everything is exactly. Yeah. You yep. know where everything is.
1: my favorite yep. stem bolt is in that closet. I'm going to go get it. Stem There's an Enterprise <laughs> reference right there.
3: Um, I, I mean, and one of the things one of the things I watched.
2: Killing stem bolt.
3: <laughs> one of the things I watched this time around is Telford says to them, "You know, you, you can leave all of your equipment here because when we go through, you become projectiles. So a lot of that equipment was already boxed and ready to go."
2: Oh yeah, I thought, I thought was a great point. Yeah, I didn't mm. even think about that. Good point, very good point. But mm. now they've got because they were wearing down on probably every everything from antibiotics to uh, mm-hmm. their their horrible food supplies yeah. to. Yeah, tonight. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, now it's basically it's past go, collect two hundred dollars. Yeah. You know they're yeah. in great shape. That, yeah. What
3: a clever science fiction idea, yeah. though. I mean, that's if they could bad, only right? find a way to re- to produce it again, you know, they could get even more. Well, <laughs> that's, that's what Rush, Rush says, isn't yeah. it?
1: We just keep doing this again and again, and eventually we'll have a whole crew <laughs> oh, of Rushes.
3: She <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, probably thinks is not a bad
2: idea.
3: Oh, of course not. <laughs>
2: oh. Jeez. I don't know. I thought, in fact, I found it very funny how it's the antithesis of Double Jeopardy. Or even uh the season two tin uh, season two tin Men episode. Or mm-hmm. season one Tin Men episode, mm. where the two Jacks absolutely hate each other. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is very telling about Jack's persona, whereas Rush is clearly in love with
3: himself. Oh, he's so narcissistic. I <laughs> absolutely. The,
1: the younger Rush is his kind of flip a few times. He's almost he hasn't been through the hell,
3: so he's almost right. enjoying this. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I mean, Robert Carlisle did such a great job in this episode. He, he got he had so much to do and he, and he carried it very well. Mm. But you know, one of the things that I was talking with Diana about and I was hoping that would happen in this episode was that everyone would have gotten back to Earth the first time around. And then mm. when when the the second ship caught up with them, they would have found out that they were already home. And so since there was one of them there, there was nowhere for them to go. And so everyone on the ship would have had no choice, unless they wanted to go home and have like a Thomas Riker situation with with, uh, with like the next gen and, and DS nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone would have been like, "Well, there's a me already back there, so now I might as well I might as well go forward." And I'm and I'm still not entirely convinced that they're all dead. That was not explained. I'm thinking it may have been a situation like Solitudes, where the gate jumped and they're all the rest of the crew is on either some planet that we're approaching. As we travel, or the rest mm. of the crew is on some planet in uh, near near Earth in the Milky Way, that where could the Stargate be. jumped.
1: Yeah, based on Stargate physics, that could certainly be, and it'd be a, it'd be a great story idea uh, if the show had gotten a third season. Which would that be, we come across? Yeah. several of our people.
3: And there's no reason for us to go home now because there they are. I'm really excited to see what happens next week. <laughs> it's just it's just kind of crazy.
2: Yes, alliances oh. looks good. Huh? Yes. Yeah.
3: I love I – love, Darren, I have to give, you, uh, give Darren a shout-out. In, in the, the discussion notes here, he says, the first, the first <laughs> annual all-crew Destiny scavenger hunt. That's funny. <laughs> <So>.
1: <laughs> That's what I'm calling it.
3: Oh, jeez. <laughs> it's a great
1: sequence because, you know, you sort of expect an away team. You sort of expect, you know, Telford is going to lead a mission over there to grab the essentials. And, and when they actually show everybody go through the gate, it's, it looks like it's basically a room full of people it's pretty much everybody goes over there to grab stuff mm-hmm. that they know is important because
3: mm-hmm. there's and a ticking clock. You usually don't see this coming to a satisfactory conclusion in science fiction. I remember uh, the ds 9 episode where they went to Empok nor and they had must-have, could-use, and would-be-nice, and they didn't go away with anything. So mm-hmm. in, this, in this episode, we don't know exactly what they got, but we can assume that they, they got pretty much everything that they needed to get.
1: Yeah, medical supplies. Um, you know, Chloe got food. The, the plants from, yeah. the, from the, the botany lab.
2: Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: Hydroponics. Stock up
2: the weapons. Yep. Yep. Self-healing we... stem bolts.
1: Yes. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> we probably have two repair droids now. We certainly have two shuttles again.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah that that one
3: happened without us batting, batting an eye. One of my friends at work said, "Oh, we have two shuttles again." So.
1: Well, Rush leaves us on a very interesting question. When he's facing himself in the chair, he asks his older self, the alternate Rush, what really happened. Mm when when all those people were trying to go through and you and Eli were like, you know, trying to balance the power flow manually to keep the, the connection established and, you know, telling everybody to go ahead and go through the wormhole, what really happened? Uh, the younger, The older Rush is not willing to sort of, you know, he's not willing to grant what the younger Rush seems to be suspecting, which is that he did something,
3: you know, I never got that impression from walking away from this episode that he might have that he might have still done something Diana, did you get that sense that there's a possibility that he interfered again?
2: well, I think it 's inferred, but it doesn 't work if it 's inferred because why would he get so upset when he accidentally killed Telford? Yeah, it just doesn 't yeah. fit, so I think, I think Eli would have know, caught
3: it the first Eli would have would have caught something and said, "Hey, look at what he did
2: yeah, it just doesn 't fit rush 's character throughout the episode and. You know, I mean, Rush, we all blame ourselves, just like, Ru- just like Eli blames himself. Maybe Rush doesn't answer because he wonders, is there something I could have done that I didn't think of? You know, if you think about the, the older Rush is very upset over Telford's accidental death. I mean, he's yeah. really upset. That guy would not have purposely killed all yeah. those people going through Well, Well, remember his
3: reaction, his reaction to Telford when the shuttle bay door first opens. You killed them, you killed them that that could yeah. be a transference there you know he's not he's no longer blaming himself he's he's sin- yeah. he's put his blame on to Telford
2: i'm not i uh, you're. i uh, I think you guys are looking for shadows that don't exist. <laughs> well, find that <laughs> <Be> <laughs> <left>. <laughs> John All from
1: right. Tennessee has a has an interesting theory here. Let's listen to John
4: John Hey, what's up this is John from Tennessee. I'm um, calling about the episode Twin Destinies great episode, great special effects great music, as we've come to expect from SGU. And personally, I think Rush planned this whole ordeal. I think the first Rush had some idea of what would happen and knew that he would get more supplies and force everyone to realize that there's no way they could dial home through a star. And he did all this and did not tell the... um, second timeline rush, what happened, so that he could live with somewhat of a clear conscience, not totally knowing uh, whether or not he killed the entire crew of Destiny. But, I mean, honestly, to me, it just seems way too convenient um, that he didn't plan it. <laughs> and uh, also, um, I was totally expecting for Telford to die, because um, we've been talking about it for the past week. But tell he's we dive he's got to be off there somehow, but anyway, great episode
1: so the theory is that maybe Rush planned the whole thing because he knows the mission can't continue without a resupply, so he maybe strategizes to go back in time and find
3: another destiny and resupply. Does this hmm. work? What do we think? I think he would have practically had to have been an ancient to figure out how to do that. I don't know if he has the knowledge to be able to figure that out.
2: Well, also, it's predicting the way people are going to behave. He's so surprised mm-hmm. when Young says he's going to stand by him and that he's going to be one of the two plus ten. I, I, I just, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I could see. I mean, also, you have to point. You have to remember that Rush panics at first when the suggestion is made by Eli. He doesn't want anybody to leave, and then he agrees to finally to a number. Mm-hmm. So, I. It doesn't doesn't connect for me Mm
1: -hmm. yeah there's a moment during that initial evacuation in the flashback where the wormhole starts to go hinky and everybody waits and uh at one point rush sort of nods to young to give everybody the go ahead to keep going through the the wormhole if he was deliberately trying to scheme to ruin their plan i would think that he would say oh sorry this is not working it's too dangerous everybody has to stay uh instead of what really ends up in in killing everybody including all those people who had decided to stay behind mm-hmm. like young and scott and chloe and the other thing is you know he knows certainly from from uh, his involvement with stargate command what goes on with solar flares and time travel with wormholes mm-hmm. but um he you know you just don't know are you going to go 100 years into the past are you going to go exactly. 2 years into the future yeah. uh, you just don't know so you yeah. can't yeah. really plan
2: yeah, I mean, even lines. in 1969, uh, when SG-1 went back in time and then tried to then use solar flares to come back forward, they overshot. mm mm-hmm. They we were still young men,
3: though. The yeah. very young do not always do as they are told.
2: Yeah, well. <laughs> but they did overshoot, and just, Cassandra had to send them back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, obviously, at least 50 years back. Mm-hmm. So that is established early on in the series, too, that you can not overshoot and trying to predict the behavior of a solar flare and how it will influence the outcome of a time travel jump. It's nice when the franchise, when the whole mythology of the franchise is just kind of there in the background of, of these episodes as they're being unveiled every week. It's, it's a treat. Really. You know,
3: and I was thinking uh, you know, about Destiny jumping completely, not just through the, the wormhole, uh, going back in time, but Destiny itself going back in time, they introduced, as much as I hate it, they introduced wormhole drive at the end of, uh, at the end of uh, Atlantis, and mm. so the entire ship may have been sucked into some kind of a wormhole.
2: Well, the wormhole, that, I mean, worm, as far as we know, the wormholes that exist have to do with black holes mm. and singularities, and that sun was very viable and quite alive. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. But, I mean, quantum mechanic-wise, we, what we don't know is most of it, is all of it. So who knows?
1: Well, before we move into our quibbles, um, some final thoughts on the episode from you guys. Uh, I was looking forward to this one more than, than most episodes of, yeah. uh, of the, the upcoming season because yeah. I knew that it had this sort of uh, classic sci-fi element of time travel that Stargate does so well and that I know Brad writes so well. Is this the sort of episode that SGU needed more of instead of uh, brooding and, and uh, being in bed and trying to figure out who's going to go where and what our motivations are? Um, did the show need more sort of classic science fiction stories, to, to use a, a hackneyed
3: term?
2: Yes. That's you mean a, a to a have nice... prevented itself
3: from getting canceled? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And this yeah. is clearly the... I mean, as far as Diana and I are concerned, this is clearly the best episode of season 2, you know. Yeah, I and mean, we compare this... it to
1: episodes like Time, which was a very sci-fi premise.
3: Yeah, which had an ending that I thought was one of the most gutsy and and a tip of the hat to, you know. That was that was probably one that, that may have been the best ending of any Stargate episode. Mm. You know. So this one, this one leaves at at the same time that it leaves so much so many questions open, it leaves you immensely fulfilled.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, quite frankly, I think this episode overall is better than time. I think time's ending was very gutsy, but this episode overall paid off on all cylinders. Science fiction, eye candy, um, emotional... Character development. Character beats, subtext. That's, the subtext is something yeah. that, quite frankly, has Underrated. been missing. It's been missing from the series. It's something that SG-1 had. I mean, if you look back at, like, Beneath the Surface or Divide and Conquer, where there were lines of dialogue written for very extreme emotional moments, and the actors chose to not do them and instead just have the looks, and mm. we became involved. That happened in this episode, not as necessarily removing dialogue, but subtext happened, and that will hook your audience, and this episode really did. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, I, I just felt, feel like it fired on all cylinders. I was upset. You know, when the episode was over, I think the true mark of a great episode is that you didn't want it to end. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that you just wanted to keep going because they really sucked you in. And boy, this one, just everything about it was great. I mean, I have some quibbles, segue, segue, but, you know, I thought it was great.
3: It's time for quibbles. My
1: my biggest quibble, most of them are pretty libel, pretty libel, libel (laughs) quibbles. (laughs) <laughs> but my Little one bitty big one is, uh, uh, you know, Nicholas Rush and Eli Wallace, frankly, need to watch more Stargate SG-1. They would know these things. As much as the math works when Eli goes back uh, with his idea and gets the approval, uh, and as much as Rush says there are a thousand possible things that can go wrong, uh, it seems pretty evident that if you get a wormhole anywhere close to a star... Something like this tends to happen. Uh, no one at Stargate Command seems to raise the red flag that that uh, yeah, dialing a like, wormhole yeah. near a star, let alone from inside of one, almost always has temporal effects. And the only exception that I can think of is Red Sky, Katow. where we had a wormhole passed through the Kitala sun, and there was not a temporal effect on it.
3: But um, still, something went wrong. You know, I mean, they yeah, killed but that sun. No. 1969,
1: 2010, Continuum. Uh-huh. The Last Man, you know, we can think of so many episodes from Stargate history.
2: But they could probably justify that they have, until Destiny, they have never known technology which uses, you know, that uses RAM scoops and scoops up solar energy within a sun to power it itself. Converts so it, yeah. Yeah, so... I I would say you can justify that they were making certain allowances because just based off the the technology involved.
1: Yeah, Well, it seemed to be a power issue. I mean, for Eli, it was about calculating the power that we can get and transfer to the Stargate and make sure that it's staying level in order to power the wormhole. Uh, Rush is exactly right. He's not an astrophysicist. So he's not thinking through things like what are the gravitational effects of a star on a wormhole going to do to it.
2: Mm. No, you're right. You're absolutely right.
3: Yeah. I mean, this is the first time that we've uh that we've dialed a nine chevron address and didn't have the body that we were drawing from uh be destroyed. I honestly expected that there was a possibility that that the star might nova. That this requires a great deal of energy and it has destroyed both both uh, Icarus type planets in the process.
2: Well, can I ask a logical I think um sequel to the is why can't they let the destiny power up with the sun and then the moment it leaves the sun then dial up the gate they'd have all that energy
3: it's still not it's still not powerful enough it's remember the des- enough. destiny can only what is it is it only 30% of its original it's like reserves
1: like 40% of its original it's not enough capacity.
3: energy
2: it can't ret- bat ba- the battery doesn't retain the battery doesn't 100%. retain anymore Correct. Right. okay they're so old okay fair question Fair so. answer cool
3: uh, i have a quibble you know uh, So Rush stands there in the gate room and he says he doesn't know how long he stood there. And eventually he sees the other destiny on his sensors. Why didn't that rush go? I mean, he didn't know that he was thrown back in time. He can't check the stars around him and see if they're in alignment. They're foreign stars. Why didn't that rush go ahead and sit in the chair? Not after, uh, I mean, right after he was left alone. So why why didn't he do that then? Why does he wait to kill Telford Mm. and then, oh, okay, well, the ship's about to explode. Now, I guess this is the perfect time to sit in the chair.
2: Well, it may just have been a case of he was still thinking it out. Maybe he thought destiny would be able to still go on. I have a couple of quibbles, if I could, two that kind of are part A and part B. Okay. You know, it's been established all along that, the, that there's an iris over the Earth stargate that can be turned on or off, or it can be pulled open or shut, and its default position is shut, to protect us from any enemies trying to send bombs through the gate or whatnot, telford goes through early and i I mean i honestly thought the first time i watched the show when he goes through early i was like oh my god he's gonna be like a bug smushed against the windshield Mm -hmm. the second part of that is that telford says uh... in the episode that a radio signal won't go through with the nine chevrons so that's why he has to go through first and yet Back in the pilot for this series, Stargate Universe, when Scott has gone through to destiny and everybody is rushing through, Scott on his radio calls back to the Mm -hmm. other side on Icarus and says, slow them down.
3: Did that message get through, though? Did you check?
2: Yes, it did. Yes, it okay. did. You can hear yeah, on the other side squelches and all that. So, you know, I know, I know oh, nice. what it's like to be a writer in the room and have to slightly change things as you go along. It, it happens all the time. but This I is couple section, a though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: I had the, always thought that, that Scott's radio message back in Air Part 1 never did make it through, which is uh, why, you know, he tells them slow down, slow down, and they don't slow and down. they don't slow down. Um, uh, but she I, says I squelches got through. On the other side it again, on the but I was actually pretty excited. Yeah. I was actually pretty excited at the continuity that, you know, I thought Telford's exactly right. We've seen the radio message doesn't make it back through. Mm-hmm. But well, I think the bigger,
2: right. part, the bigger part of this question is why wasn't Telford squished like a bug when he hit us to Earthgate?
3: Well, if, I mean, the way that I remember it, when there were unscheduled off-world activations... And that's what you heard Walter say the most back at SGC. The iris was shut. But SG, SG teams often came back at scheduled times. And if they scheduled this with Earth, they could have come back without the iris being shut. And they know that these guys are beyond radio range. They're not going to shut the iris on an incoming on the incoming wormhole. Additionally, we don't know if there are any threats in the Milky Way right now. The Gould are wiped out. The Ori are gone. There may not be... That the the security level may be low enough that they're not using the iris mm-hmm. right now on a regular basis. Uh, yeah, that part Protective, I don't buy. Red, little orange. Okay.
2: Yeah, but I okay. don't buy that. I don't buy that they would not. They would stop doing the iris bit. I yeah, think they iris would continue. But security. what I would buy is they had had the conversation on the stones. They synchronized watches. Plus nine chevrons lit up on the on the Earth Gate. You well, know, we don't know that. Seven.
3: I think, we we I don't think know how that it, worked, but yeah.
1: That's true. We don't know what an incoming nine chevron wormhole looks like, but I think I'm not. I would have to think about if we have any evidence for this. It seems like maybe they would know that this is a special long distance call that's coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, they. I I would just point to the fact that they did communicate over the stones that hey, we're about to try this. Mm-hmm. The hitch would be Telford goes back somewhere close to twelve hours earlier than that when he winds Ooh. up back on Earth. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So that communication problem. with Earth was uh, unexpected. Would have to be
3: outside of that twelve-hour window.
2: Yes, exactly.
3: Collect call from the Destiny. Would you accept the charges? Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah, but the stone, con- the, the the Lee uh, Eli swap, Doctor Lee Eli swap, had to have happened more than twelve hours ago.
3: Yeah, so it's entirely know? possible that this was this was in production long before twelve hours. Right and and yeah. there's some sign that that a Stargate is being dialed in from uh, from really far. I mean, that's entirely possible.
2: Right. And, and just give credit
1: where credit is due. Diana pointed that out to me before we started recording.
2: Yeah, but then well also Telford. Um, there's been some questions about why didn't the older Telford Telford warn the Destiny about the accident? He wouldn't know. Yeah. You know, he wouldn't know that anyone would have survived to get a message to. As far as he's concerned, there's only one timeline, one destiny. Yeah. It wouldn't be this second destiny that is really the original destiny. I don't know.
3: Well, he Captain didn't know that they but, didn't come through. Right. Um, so he's he could have thought the that stones. they were still there. Well, he knows, knows the
2: come, he knows they didn't come through. He knows they didn't come through. Right. Yeah, but First,
1: he's sitting on the stones waiting to find out why they didn't come through. So right. as far as he you know, everybody just stayed back yeah. on the ship.
3: Earth, I don't think Earth can initiate a stone call.
2: I don't know about that, but what I would question is, is that you brought up a good point, Darren. If he came through and the others didn't, would he have rushed to the stones and said, what happened? And would those stones be able to communicate with the other right timeline stones, yeah. you know, so mm. I mean, it, I think
3: we're digging it, ourselves the, a hole here, folks. <laughs>
2: well, it's a, you have to not think overthink it, yeah. you know, just go with well, it. Well, no, because he's boring.
3: in
1: he's back in his timeline 12 hours in the past and
3: we're we're thinking that's the, that's what we're going with, yeah
1: so so at this point, there's two destinies in this timeline with two communication stone boxes, and If somebody on our destiny had had happened to sit down at the stones at that time, I think they would have connected with Telford instead mm-hmm. of alternate rush gets around to it a few hours later.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: The other quibble I have is uh the the fact that destiny is falling into the star as we're coming back, and you know rush is running at a breakneck pace to make it back to the Stargate. Uh, Scott, it looks like, is maybe ke- keeping his arm in the in the wormhole mm-hmm. to keep it active. Uh, and they make it through just in the nick of time as Destiny falls into the Star. The risk that you run, if we remember the way that Stargates and stars work, those Stargates are really resilient little things. Uh, and and maybe the 1.0 version of the gate is uh, a little bit more destructible when it gets close to a star. But the risk that they run in doing this is that the gate is not going to be destroyed and stellar matter is going to
3: come pouring mm-hmm. through the gate behind them. Then there's no shield on the uh, on the uh, Destiny Iris, right? Or Destiny Stargate. Yeah, right. I think
2: didn't they have an episode where they had a shield. I don't remember one. No, but maybe there isn't.
3: I think no. that they disconnected the wormhole when they went through. Either it went off by itself or someone pulled the plug on it.
1: Yeah, maybe because he was holding it open, you know, just maybe a few seconds past the 38-minute window. Yeah, mm. Maybe there's a, a bit of confidence there that the wormhole is going to shut down. Mm-hmm.
3: That was an also, also an interesting question, too. I mean, could Destiny actually dial its own Stargate? Cause it's it, but it's a unique address. And they also said, you know, it doesn't work on a point in space, a fixed point in space. They didn't Right, do
1: like that. yeah. So. Yeah, and presumably, uh, obviously, uh, it's the case that you don't need a 9 Chevron address. Uh, you don't need the extra power to dial that 9 Chevron address when you're Not just Not when down you're in range block. of it, yeah. Uh, and you can do the two-way radio communication yep. through the 9 Chevron address when you're just yep. down the block. Mm-hmm. Very good. Fantastic. This is SGU at its finest.
2: Thank you for having me on. You you guys always have me on for the great episodes. (laughs) I'm very happy. (laughs) You know, this whole, and now Twin Destinies. I'm very happy. I get to talk about SGU at its best.
1: Well, thanks for coming back.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. We have
1: eight more episodes.
2: Mm -hmm. yeah
3: must do it again
1: happy to come back a big thanks once again to diana botsford for joining us Mm -hmm. for our discussion of twin destinies and uh, we do have some other listener mail but the show is running long so if you called in and you didn't hear your message if it wasn't about twin destinies we're gonna try and squeeze it into a future show Uh, but we do have one from trevor that is time sensitive especially if you're in germany listen up
4: hello from trevor in england sgu season two starts on german tv channel RTL2 on Wednesday the 16th of March at 8.15pm, which is 7.15 in the UK. They are showing two episodes a week. There is a full page ad from this in the German TV magazine. RTL2 has an English catchphrase. It's fun. I wonder how much it costs to dub the series into another language. As Battlestar Galactica had a boxing episode, we'll ask you you about wrestling one. Keep up the good work
3: with your podcast. Thank you, Trevor, for your comments.
1: Stargate Universe is coming back to RTL2 in Germany on March 23rd. That's this week. Coming up on the GateWorld podcast next week on March 28th, we're going to be talking about this week's new episode, Alliances, which airs Monday night on Sci-Fi and Tuesday night on Space in Canada. And then we're going to get into April here. Our first episode in April uh, for the podcast will be Hope, which airs at the end of March. And then April 11th, we're going to be talking about Seizure, which, of course, is the big uh, Stargate Universe, Stargate Atlantis crossover episode. Thanks, everybody, for tuning into the podcast this week. Special thanks to Russell also for editing the show. And if you want to give us a call on the podcast feedback hotline, watch Alliances this week and then uh, give us a call – by end of day on Friday, uh, that number is nine five one, two six two, sixteen, forty seven, or you can record a brief message on your computer. And email the mp3 or WAV file to webmaster at gateworld.net.
3: Yeah, you can also comment on the podcast feedback thread in GateWorld form. We're always happy to see your face in there. And don't forget, our show notes available each week in the gateworld.net news feed. They come out in tandem with every podcast. So any links that we, any, anything that we talk about in the show that has a link, it'll be in there.
1: We talked about a lot of episodes from Stargate past at this yeah, point. Yeah, we did. So- if you're not one of uh, these longtime Stargate viewers and don't know what the heck we're talking about when we talk about solar flares and the episode 1969, you can you can track it down there in
3: the show notes. Yes, this episode was very uh, was very rich. Uh, this not podcast, but the episode Twin Destinies was Twin Destinies was very rich of uh, a lot of Stargate mythology. So I think yeah. that's one of the reasons it was so successful.
1: Well, we'll come back next week and do it again. From GateWorld, this is Darren. This be David. And we'll see you back here next week for another installment of the GateWorld podcast.